0: This conference will now be recorded.
1: Good evening, everybody. Um, this is the Livy Reading Group, and we are um, discussing books twenty-four and twenty-five. It's Tuesday, November tenth, and um, we are uh, we are on at seven o'clock. No, eight o'clock Eastern Time, and we are also going to be discussing an interesting section tonight and I was thinking about titling it um, something like where's Waldo but where's Hannibal because it's it he's, he's not around as much as I thought he would be um, and we had just been discussing uh, some other things about Livy right before we started the recording so I don't want to uh, I don't want to ignore that. So people, go ahead and jump back in again if you have any burning questions or uh, interesting uh, observations, and then we'll take it from there. Um, I've got some really good questions for us later, too. So,
0: I actually have a question. Um, yes, I'm trying who, to who find is it? it? This is Nan. Nan. I'm trying to find it in the text, and it's just... Uh, I've never seen it before. Um, They're talking about uh, their temple or making offerings, and it's to Concord, C-O-N-C-O-R-D. Yes. And I've never heard of that before in any context. And I just was that a god, or was what 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 is that in reference to?
1: (laughs) Um, did, Did you say it was a temple? Of, well, I don't know.
0: know. I I, I can't, I'm looking for where it was, but it's like they were going to a, a statue of Concord, or they were going to a temple of Concord, or right,
2: right, something
0: like that. And I and I'd never, you know, like you see, you know, temple of Athena, or you know, making Apollo or Mars, or you know, you, most of the things I've heard before, but I'd never seen that before in ancient stories.
1: Yeah. Um, I can't
0: find it, of course. Now, yeah,
1: it's not in the glossary, right? So, what
0: else?
2: What do people think? I was wondering if it was not rather not a particular god, but rather, if you would, a spirit of unity, concord.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And and is a capitalized concord? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There, um, in one of Horace's poems, he talks about how justice with a capital J and and. Fides or trust with a capital, you know, F I D E S. So these are personified values that they have, and Concord is in there probably as well. Mm-hmm. And they did build temples to these abstract deities or spirits. I think yeah, I just spir- found spirit it a a on page
0: two twenty, the altar of Concord.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, good. Two twenty and. Yeah. Um, What's really interesting also is that Augustus built an altar of peace, and it's still in, uh, in Rome. It's right on the Tiber across from, uh, was it Hadrian's tomb or Castle San Angelo? And um, so they were, they were kind of treated like deities, I think, right? This on 220.
0: Yeah, so the, the second half of the page, the um, second paragraph, at dawn the next day.
1: Oh, awesome yeah altar of concord and this was in looks like it was in Syracuse mm-hmm. and so yeah they also were um were uh, celebrating and and worshiping uh the spirit i guess of Concord that's great yeah now what a um what a uh a symbolic reference that is to you know the politics you know when you go to the altar of Concord and express yourself and you know, <laughs> try to, uh, I guess, use that as a, as a support. Um, so it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, great. Anything else about that? Take a look at that, at that paragraph. Um, this is when Adranodorus, he's the son-in-law of, uh, Hieronymus, right? The, uh, King of Syracuse that died. And um, I think, is this when he is trying to win over the people of Syracuse? Let's see. At dawn the next day, Adranodorus threw open the gates of the island and came into the form of Acradina. I think Um, he was
0: holed up. He was, I think, was the tyrant dead now? And he was holed up in.
1: That's what I was thinking, too. I, I sent an email. I sent a map um, of uh, Sicily and Syracuse. So if you, uh, if, you, if you can check it, your email, I got that out of a book, um, another version of the uh, Punic War, Second Punic War. And it's nice to see Syracuse and what they're referring to here. Someone was going to say something?
2: I was uh, this is that again. I was just jumping in saying that uh, he had been holed up a little bit and he was explaining why he had been withdrawn, oh yeah, right very good um,
1: and this was the acradina, which on the map you can see syracuse is on the on the coast obviously, and it's um it's got Four sections inside the walls. Uh, one of them is Acradina, and it's it's um, it looks like the largest section of the city. And so there were. Um, this was a very in- intricate network of forts um, at Syracuse. Does anyone remember who um, who was the engineer, the architect, famous philosopher?
2: Archimedes. Archimedes.
1: Yeah, Archimedes. So that great story about his death is in, is in our reading tonight too. Um, so yeah, Adrenodorus, um, the son-in-law, he, um, he apparently was, uh, not well liked at this moment. And then he, um, he tried to, he's trying to win over and make some peace and I think he's, he's pretty successful at first, um. And we see on page two twenty one in, in chapter twenty three, after this speech, um, Adrian and set the keys of the gates and the treas tyrant's treasury at their feet. So he kinda kinda gives in there. Now look at the end of chapter twenty two on page two twenty one. The last word of the speech is um Concord. So um that's uh That's a nice coincidence there. Um, Good, good. Other questions or observations?
3: Yeah, uh, I found it very interesting that in the way he introduces uh, uh, the Scipio who will eventually be called Africanus. Sort of slips it in kind of as an aside um, on the top of page 254. Okay, you know, it's sort of like the introduction of the you know, the eventual hero, but it's so so finely done. It reminds me of uh, you know, like in an opera, opera, when you first hear the motif of the hero. You know, sometimes it's a very subtle play, and that's what he uh, he does here. he just sort of this sort little of paragraph says, oh, he gets elected to his first office
1: yeah you'll
3: hear about it again
1: yeah that is that is a remarkable uh note actually. thank you very much. Anybody else find that interesting? Um, he, of course, is going to be the hero later on. Sorry about the spoiler alert there um, but um i I was interested here too. I put a little star next to this because this is the first time I noticed that he was presented and I thought, well, wasn't he mentioned earlier than this? And I couldn't, I don't know if he was, but I looked in the index and I didn't even see this reference, didn't even make the index. I mean, there are other references to him that are in the index, but I don't think this page even was mentioned as if, but I think it's a very important moment here um, where uh, he's mentioned and he starts coming into his, what do you call, into his own, um, and getting involved. He's a curule IDLA, um, which is, um, uh, an IDLA, which is a, uh, a rank or an office just below Praetor. And, um, is curule means he has a chair that he's allowed to sit in, which is a, a very important sort of authority, authority, uh, symbol. Um, so it's a pretty important post. And, um, but he doesn't really play a part yet um, in the in the military operations. But he's definitely moving up.
4: Great. Well, I think Livy to keep his audience happy would have had to get Africanus in there as soon as possible, right? Cause his of course. Contemporary yeah. audience would say, "Well, where is he? Where is yeah, he?" He's, yeah. By the way, they all know who he is, and they're yeah, sort of yeah. waiting for him to be introduced.
1: There's his smiling face, right, peeking around there. That's good. That's right. Um, so it keeps the story a little lively. Um, and then he does talk a little bit here. He says, if all the citizens of Rome want to make me an eye delay, Scipio declared that I am old enough. So <laughs> there, there you go. So there, people, you know. Um, and they were supporting him. Who knows what, based on his personality, his skills, we don't know necessarily. So... Um, and then we have our list of <clears throat> appointments there in Chapter 3 of who is uh, who are the praetors um, and so forth. So, yeah, and so the good thing is Livy kind of keeps us informed of this year by year. And uh, nobody really questions the uh, accuracy of that, but they often question so many other things. But this definitely... Um, seems to be unquestioned for the most part. Um, so I read in this Walsh book that um, Livy was using the annals of the Roman, you know, the priests, they would keep records to call the, uh, the annals. And they were just chronicles of some sort. And they would be um, including this basic kind of information. So maybe that's, that's what's happening here. Livy is sort of inserting that into his narrative and then helping us keep the dates straight, because that would be every year they would elect these different uh, these different people. All right, other um, other observations or comments.
2: Well, just speaking to your previous comment, I think that one thing that we're very accustomed to is having, if you will, a Julian calendar, which they did not have at that time. Mm-hmm. And so the way they would record the passage of time and events is by Keeping track of who was you know of their government officials, if you will exactly yes they
1: they um they they said when you know in the year of the consuls x and y right? right and um and so it'd be like today saying, you know in the year of you know Ronald Reagan's second year of office or something mm-hmm. like that, um and yeah, you, know, you can do the math then right <laughs> well,
2: I don't know that I don't know. I don't know that they actually did the math so much as they could place it within the context of, if you will, the reader's lives. Yeah. Or their memory, so that you could find the context for when an event happened. We use numbers, but their numbers were unreliable. Not the numbers, of course, but their enumeration of the years were unreliable because of the slippage due to, you know, these right. years and things like that one of the major reasons that they instituted the Julian reforms was because seasons were literally getting completely combolixed
1: <laughs> Right, because they had a lunar calendar first, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that just didn't, uh, it wasn't as long, right? I think it was like 350 days a year or something. and then eventually. Well, and
2: over the years, it's not accurate. And, right. You right. know, I mean, you look at Roman engineering and then wonder how could they live with a calendar like that? <laughs> Yeah, they were creatures of tradition, that's for sure, right? Absolutely, and that's reinforced throughout these two chapters with Livy's discussions of the various sacrifices and propitions that had to be made. I mean, never mind the auguries and the rest of it, the flammes and so on. Right,
1: Those things were really intertwined with with their daily and political life, too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I just just couldn't help it. And so we we really do see that. We do see that mix get get in there. um, good. What else? What else can we can we bring up at this point here?
5: Well, this is Therese. Yeah. As, as usual, I'm very amused and amazed by some of the tactics that were used, and one of which was in Book 25, um, in Chapter 11, when Hannibal moved the ships um, of Tarentum mm-hmm. in carts across city streets into the harbor in order to um, form a blockade of the people that were at the Citadel there. I thought that was amazing.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, let's take a closer look at That looks like it's on page 265. Um, And so tell us a little bit more. What do you you see, like, very very more specifically, like, what's what's really fascinating about that?
5: So... So he's talking about at the bottom of page 266, he's um, calling all the Tarantines together and explaining the problems that they faced. He saw no way of taking a well-protected Citadel by assault um, and had no confidence in the blockade as long as the enemy controlled the sea because the Citadel apparently was up on, on the seaside on a very high cliff that they couldn't reach. And he said that if he had ships which he could head off the conveyance of supplies, the enemy would either immediately leave the Citadel or surrender. And then the Tarakines agreed, but they said they thought that the man responsible for the idea should also be responsible for providing the means to carry it out, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Um, and then <laughs> they he bring Punic ships from Sicily. And he responds, he says, they will make it out, said Hannibal. Many problems that nature puts in one's way are solved by thinking them through. And then he talks about the fact that the city is on a plane and the streets are level. Right. And he says, yeah. Yeah. he says, I shall transport the ships on wagons along the street that runs through the city center. I'm <laughs> just like, yet again, here he is. Like. <laughs> Yay,
1: he's back.
5: <laughs> I know. <laughs>
1: because I really missed him, you know, like 24, <laughs> book 24, he was sort of not really around, and I, I didn't really hear anything like this. And this really is the first time in a while that, you know, his... his interesting way of putting things comes up. It's it's really good. Um, He makes it sound so much so easy and matter of fact, doesn't he? Yeah,
5: yeah. Um,
1: But it's it's, it's, it's quite ingenious. Um, So what do you think about that as far as Livy? I mean, he seemed to be really, really praising Hannibal in a lot of ways. And I know he criticized him too, but he seemed to Hannibal seemed to be the star of the show in the first few books, you know, 21, 22, even 23 and then this time around I really I, I don't know, he I don't think he disappeared but he he didn't seem to be playing as major of a role or Livy wasn't focusing as much on him. So any ideas about that? Am I wrong or or is 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 there a reason maybe that that Livy <laughs>
5: Maybe Libby was disappointed in the fact that Hannibal wasn't a closer at tonight.
1: Yeah,
5: yeah. And just kind of moved on to, because it it just seems like there was so much going on in so many places. And earlier before the recording started, you talked about how the fact that the text isn't linear, and I think it's just because there was so much going on simultaneously, he did the best he could to try to put it all together.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, he seems to be, I mean, he's recording his <laughs> as an annal, and he's relating what occurs in the various magistrates' terms throughout the, which, if you will, the Roman world that's, you know, applicable to Hannibal's war. But he's also, I sense, building a narrative where the Romans are still playing whack-a-mole with Hannibal, (laughs) although Hannibal hasn't been, you know, really on the scene. But Hannibal's generals are so good, and the Romans are suffering these Essentially crushing defeats. I mean, especially in twenty-four. Yeah. That you know, you're just waiting for the gentleman who will become Africanus to take the stage and start turning the tide. Because all throughout the, this reading, the Romans have been bemoaning. You know, we need to raise new legions. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel. You know, send out magistrates and start looking at people who are legally not able to be conscripted, but who are, you know, maybe physically capable, and therefore we're going to take them. Mm -hmm. You know, private parties are going to fund ships and sailors, if you will. Uh, They're really pressed, or they seem to be really pressed, and he's making a great to-do about that. And I I don't know what access he had to any Carthaginian sources, probably not much, because I don't think they left very many, but um, Hannibal seems to just be sort of cruising along. You know, I mean, he doesn't talk about getting reinforcements. Obviously, he wins battles, but in the course of he must take losses, how are those losses made up? Yeah. Yeah, that is a good question. Um,
1: You know, attrition, um, all kinds of things are affecting his troops. Even though he's, you know, he's not losing very many battles, but still, um, how does he uh, get reinforced? And how does he, you know,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's keeping a huge army in the field for seven years in at least 50 percent hostile territory I mean, he's having a little bit of success with the city states coming over to him or temporarily you know when he's camped outside their gates they're his friends and when he moves away they start thinking twice about it mm-hmm. but yes
1: yes definitely um he's uh he you know if they if they don't help him they're going to help the romans right so yeah that's another thing um, that uh, that becomes a pretty important piece in the whole puzzle. Um, I was thinking that one of the reasons Hannibal isn't as much in the forefront is in Book 24, at least, is because of the shift of uh, focus. And we we read a lot about Syracuse, for instance, um, Hieronymus and uh, Hiero, and all these. And then we read, uh, actually read about some of the states, uh, the cities that are on the coast down near the boot, you know, the bottom of the, of the peninsula of Italy. And um, if you look at the map of Italy, for instance, and um, you look at these um, cities, they're all along the southern coast. And they're, they're possible entry points for reinforcements, I think, for, uh, for Hannibal. You have uh, Regium, which stays Roman; Locri, which is going back and forth, like you said, um, and then Croton, which falls, um, I think, at the beginning of Book Twenty Four.
2: Yeah, and they're, they're all very the Phillips, right. Invasion, yeah. It, it, it it's difficult to judge. Well, I find it difficult to judge because I almost I don't entirely trust Livy in his narrative with respect to being, well, there's no reason to think that he would be even-handed, but I don't know that he's, you know, I think he has a purpose in writing this history.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
1: I I think so too. I'm not sure what it is yet, but...
3: Um, uh, Audrey, I, this is how I... Yeah. I would, uh, I would approach it, yeah, if you look at it for, in a military campaign standpoint, Hannibal can no longer win the war, right? Uh, And Roman is now Rome is sort of like uh, America; is learning how to fight a multi-tiered campaign. And if you think about that, they if Rome can keep Sicily under Roman rule and want most of the entry points into southern Italy uh, from Hannibal, Hannibal. Is eventually going to wither away. He just, yeah, you can't, he can't sustain the campaign, and he can't sustain his forces at a at a level to make it be decisive. Uh-huh. So Rome probably is saying, "All right, we'll let, we'll just kind of keep him contained, and we'll handle Sicily. We'll control the seas. We'll eventually." Take care of Spain, and eventually Hannibal is going to have to leave. I mean, he just can't sustain
4: himself there long term, right?
3: Now that Hannibal can no longer win, uh, uh, and so the major existential threat to Rome is, is done.
1: Well, um, that's a very that's a very interesting point. Um, what do other people think about this? Does Hannibal have any any chance left at this point? Um What could he do to really you know change the situation at this point? I wonder
4: hmm.
2: well, if he can't get the city states to come over to him, he's really stuck because he's for all intents and purposes lost his power base in spain yeah he's not going he's not going to get Gaelic reinforcements from the Gaulish tribes.
1: Yeah, they're not Uh, very reliable.
2: If if the city-states don't come over, he has a problem. Going back to my previous comment about not trusting Livy, and again, it may be because Livy doesn't have access, the Carthaginians don't seem to really care. I mean, they've sort of turned Hannibal loose and then kind of forgotten. And every now and then you'll hear he gets some reinforcements or a fleet shows up. But there's no real discussion about what's going on back in Carthage with respect to supporting this war that they started. Mm Mm-hmm. It's almost as though Hannibal's doing it all on his own, and the Carthage—you know—the Rome, the Romans—are on the ropes and scraping the bottom of the barrel, <clears throat> fighting for their existence. The Carthaginians—it seems to be business as usual. Mm. That's a
1: good point. I, I, you know, after all that discussion and, and ex- explanation of what was going on in Carthage in the first, right, the first book, book mm-hmm. twenty-one, we got more than we probably even needed, right? And now there's really nothing. It's almost like a communications what um, blackout, you know. Um, and it is, because Hannibal really has no connection. He has no communications
2: with Carthage.
1: He's
3: Carthage doesn't
2: seem to be managing their endeavor. Mm-hmm. They sort of I, left it up to him to go over there and do your thing.
1: Yeah. I'm surprised, uh, you know, <clears throat> looking at the map and looking at Tarentum, for instance, you know, another... Key harbor port city, um, which he really needs because that's that's his only way that he can um, stay in touch with Carthage. Um, The uh, these are becoming more and more important. Like you said, the allies are more and more important now. Um, And I saw. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I thought I saw the Romans really trying even though sometimes they seem to almost shoot themselves in the foot but they're trying to get their allies or these, these these cities to to come back to them um and um and work with them again because you know they don't have they're losing they're losing soldiers and and uh, they're losing probably a lot of grain you know um, and uh so the the battle now is not necessarily for uh you know it may not be a decisive military battle at this point, but it's definitely a battle over who's going to who's going to be able to feed their their people. Um, I don't know. Well, if you think about the geography uh, carthage a,
3: and Carthage has lost control of the sea lanes. right yeah, you know, and as long as Rome holds basically Syracuse and most of Sicily. And uh, it's very, in Sardinia and Corsica, it's very hard for Carthage to sustain, provide any sustainment support to Hannibal. Um, I mean, this is a classic, bigger terms, if you think about it. This is, uh, Hannibal's like shock and awe. Well, mm-hmm. unless your shock and awe overwhelms and is initially successful, I got the uh, the enemies figure out how to react and you know, survive. And you can only do that once. and uh, Uh, Hannibal, I think, strategically rolled the dice and uh, was not uh, didn't win, and now he's stuck.
1: Okay, so so Hannibal is sort of is he has he been neutralized? do You think? I think pretty much. Okay, long term, but I think
2: they're
1: still going to take
2: massive losses.
1: Sorry, say that again.
2: Long term, I think I agree he's been neutralized, but I think that. In that future period, going, they realize they're going to take massive losses. Now it's a war of attrition.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, and if it's a war of attrition, then the, that's, that's a war that Rome could
2: probably win, right? Well, um, yeah, because most of the cities that are at risk are not really Roman.
1: Uh-huh. Now, the main source of grain... Uh, Carthage really grows its own food, um, that part of North Africa was very fertile at that time. But the next biggest breadbasket is Sicily, and um, that's where they fought the first Punic War. Um, it really wasn't fought on Italy or in, in, in uh, North Africa. So uh, I think both sides, you know, if they're, if they're, they're looking to feed their troops, because most of italy by this point has been pretty ravaged um i think at one point it says that a lot of the 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 country folk uh sought refuge in rome and other cities because they just couldn't stand um being uh, attacked and uh invulnerable in the open uh in the country so there's not a lot of food being grown in, in italy i think it's sicily still rather i don't know not untouched but still uh Probably able to provide some means of sustenance, so maybe that's what the shift is here. Um, going state, a lot of the a lot of the action I think was described as being in the south uh, of Italy and in Sicily here. So this might be the the, the 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 turning point, if you will. I don't know. It could be. Um, let's see. Um, let me let me ask us to just turn to the in the book to the chronology. Um, I'm looking specifically at Roman numeral 41, or uh, yeah, XLI or 41 in the chronology. And the basic content of our our reading tonight is listed under the years 214, 213, and 212. And um, so we look at uh, Hannibal, uh, he's, in, he's in the middle of Italy in Campania, and he's not as involved in, the, in, in these uh, act- actions and operations farther south as much. We, we read a little bit about Sicily in Book 24, we read about Marcellus in Sicily, uh, capturing leontini another town near syracuse um syracuse is swayed over to carthage and then rome has to actually beat back uh, a threat by philip of macedon so i'm pretty impressed uh that rome was able to fight almost a a two or actually a three-front war at this point maybe even more that spain um greece and uh Carthage fighting against these or in these different places. Um, then uh, then in 213, which doesn't look like a lot happening in it, but uh, if you look at that phonology, it shows that um, Arfi is captured at, at the front in Apulia, in southern Italy. Why is that so important? Uh, Roman operations in Sicily, uh, siege of Syracuse. Again, why are these why are these places so important to, uh, to this war? Um, I don't know. I think this shift is, is is going more toward the Allies at this point, and um, who can win over uh, their supplies, their support, or what have you? Um, Hannibal just seems to not be, you know, a, a player. In uh, in the year two thirteen
0: here. So, someone crumbling a paper or something?
1: Yeah, somebody. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's see. Um, that's what that's what I was starting to uh, uh, to look at, and if if we turn to page one ninety four. Uh, this is at the beginning of Book Twenty Four. This is—I uh, just wanted to sh- share something with you. Page One Ninety Four, and this is the last sentences of Book Twenty Three, and it says that um, in a in a battle in Spain. More than thirteen thousand of the enemy were killed, and more than two thousand taken prisoner, uh, with forty-two standards and nine elephants captured. Okay, at that point, nearly all the tribes of Spain went over to the Romans, and the operations in Spain that summer were far more impressive than those in Italy, which were definitely not going well. So he ends that book with a comment on not necessarily decisive victory over Carthage, but about the tribes going toward the Romans. So that really helped them. Um, the next page 195, it, it says, he opens this book with these words after his return from Campania to Brutium, which is farther south, sort of the, the heel and the, and the foot of Italy. Hanno took the offensive against the Greek cities in the area and the Bruti aided him and acted as his guide. So that's, that's the shift. Um, for quite a while, in Book 24. Um, and then we, we read about, as, as was mentioned earlier, other generals in, of Carthage, you know, Carthaginian army, which sounds pretty uh, smart on the Roman part to start taking the battle to other parts instead of Hannibal. Um, okay. Then we get Sicily... Uh, and Syracuse, especially. So what what do you think Livy is trying to tell us about um, through this whole detailed succession of um, power in Syracuse? Why is that so important?
5: Well one thing that I thought was interesting was, um and I don't have it in front of me, but the fact that at one point two Carthaginians were elected, I think, as praetors there. And I I, I don't know, I was a little bit surprised by that. I think it just kind of showed the confusion. I think that was after Hieronymus was killed, things were a bit chaotic.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And so they tried to um right, they gave they gave some, some power to some of the sympathizers. And made them generals, right? So they had some decision power, um, and yeah. So, um, so that was—I don't know. What, what is? What, what do you think about that? Uh, was that a good move? Not a good move? Or
5: well, I, to me, it just seemed like things were in disarray. Um, at that time, and then, um, you know, the whole part of, I think it was Adranodorus coming forward, and and then um, the people rising up against the royalty and deciding to kill all the royalty until then they didn't, but it was too late. It just seemed very chaotic uh,
1: mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, very dangerous, and... Uh,
5: yeah.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. So,
5: Yep.
1: Yeah. So in a sense, Livy kind of encapsulates what anarchy can can look like, and civil dis- dissension, and and almost a civil war, I guess, um, mm-hmm. in this right in this very very key city, probably the most important city in Sicily, um, and uh, yeah, what else what else do we get out of this? Um, again, very detailed description. Um, that uh that Livy provides um I, I I for one I was um I was interested in uh how he included a lot of the same uh place names in Sy- in Syracuse that Thucydides mentioned and I had read Thucydides before and and read Book Eight in Thucydides, where there is this real, real, um, or I think it's Book Six, I forget which one, but there is a real, real dramatic and tragic um, story, very similar to this in Livy, where uh, Syracuse is you know just gutted and um, the Greeks suffer a terrible, uh, disastrous defeat there and all this kind of stuff. So. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do with Livy's choice of, uh, you know, describing this, this, this particular, these events, but it was coincidental, at least, that, um, that this kind of thing, history was sort of repeating itself.
4: Um, I, I think, I think Syracuse seems clearly to be, have been considered this really important, historically significant place, one of the most important in Italy. Uh-huh. To the Romans, you have the scene later on where Marcellus is brought to tears for fear that it's going to be destroyed, this yes. really important, beautiful place. So I think, I mean, I think, so I think I, I'm assuming Livy's treatment of it, aside from the lessons he's trying to draw about anarchy and so forth, which which I think is true too, but I also think this was just, it would be as if Boston were, were going to be destroyed. Right. You would you would spend a lot of time on the battle for Boston. Yeah. Even if it's not the most important city in the country anymore. It's so historically significant and resonant that people, you know, he probably I'm sure he would have thought that his readers were anxious to know, you know, the the full story of Syracuse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that.
1: That's a really good point. Yeah, it has such a history, and, you know, all the Romans have heard of Syracuse and all the Carthaginians, too.
4: Plus, they had this wonderful ally who was king for, like, what, 70 years, 60 years, something Mm -hmm. like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Good, good. Um, Anything else about about that or, or about history repeating itself? I have a little bit of a a hypothesis, and it started coming to me just the last few weeks. And um, I've been uh, very interested in the way Livy, sometimes his events, the way he portrays them, they do echo. Like in this case, it echoes something that Thucydides had described earlier. And then um, there are other places in the reading so far that uh, seem to echo other things other events that have happened earlier as well and I was wondering if if anybody had any thoughts about that or noticed anything like that um, some some people may feel that that is maybe compromises Livy's uh, uh, accuracy or whatever if he's you know, relating events that seemingly uh, mirror other ones or so forth. But um, I've been reading about the Stoics and how the Stoics believe that everything kind of repeats itself. I mean, they say whatever you've seen in 40 years of your life is enough because, you know, no matter what time period you live, if you've you've lived at least 40 years, you will have seen pretty much everything um, that there is to see. Now, that doesn't include washing machines and automobiles or anything, but it does, I think it does mean uh, the way humans behave. So this guy Walsh, that I'm reading you know, his, his book about Livy, he does say that Livy was influenced by stoicism. So maybe he has that sort of recurrent historical kind of point of view. I don't know. I was just, I'm just kind of exploring that now.
5: Well, we certainly see that in the Middle East. That's not really a topic for tonight, but um, with the U.S. involvement um, with, you know, differing sides depending on their agenda, and then, you know, ultimately American soldiers get killed by people that have been trained by the United States in the previous decade. So, I mean, I think that, that, is, that that's a very true statement across the board. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Good, good. Um, let's see. Let's 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 go on and uh, let's see about now. We talked a little bit about the naval uh, theater and how the Romans pretty much. It seems like they have some sort of naval control. Is that right? Do they they pretty much control the the sea lanes? I think that's what we said earlier. Yes. Um, and they keep putting this one guy in charge of it again. His name is Titus Achilles or something like that. Um, and even though he messed up once before, they, they, he seems to be able to handle this situation pretty well. Um, so without that kind of help, that sort of naval help, how are the Carthaginians going to really succeed, um, especially... Um, In Sicily, I'm wondering.
5: Um, Well, in Sicily, wasn't a huge factor also, the plague that struck. I mean, I think that that, didn't that have a huge impact on wiping out, I mean, I think it was mentioned that the Carthaginian land force was wiped out by the plague, and so whatever hope they might have had during the whole uprising, uh, they turned to care of it. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
5: Yes. My, I, I mean, am I wrong about that? Well, oh, I read
1: it. Yeah. It's it's um. There's still like if we look at the map, the Syracuse is on the eastern side, and that's where a lot of this is happening. There's not. I guess they're starting to move further inland uh, and and west in Sicily as well. So, at some point. Um, they're going to have to, uh, you know, I think, make a bid for it. Um, the whole island, I think, is that what happens in book twenty-five? Is that do we see that sort of move? Um, well,
5: that's where Balmokar like makes an appearance, and he, I think, he faces off with Epistus.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: It was just kind of weird because there's a face-off, and then all of a sudden Balmokar flees to him.
3: Oh, right, right. I
5: don't know if you, next in that chapter 27. Uh-huh. So it was just kind of like, ah, oh, here I am, we're going to go. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, it's not going to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if we look at book 25, right, there's Tarentum. We see um, uh, more action around Syracuse with Marcellus. And then this terrible plague, um, why don't we look at some of that? That's that's pretty that's pretty interesting, and it's pretty dramatic too. Let's see if we can find that in book twenty-five. Book twenty-five. Let's see. Um, okay, plague. Okay, I think we're on page two eighty-nine. Oh yeah, two eighty-eight. Okay, so. Right. What you were saying is um, there, was, uh, there was this struggle between Ep- Epicides, right, and Marcellus, and the, the Punic fleet also landed. I'm looking at 288 in the middle of the page. Uh, okay. the, Punic, the Punic fleet also landed on the shoreline between the city and the Roman camp in order to make it impossible for Crispinus to be sent as- assistance by Marcellus. So there's still some naval struggle going on here. The, the, the Carthaginians aren't totally out of it. Um, and Marcellus forced Epicides back into the city. Um, okay. Now both sides face the further problem of a plague. This is the last paragraph on page 288, um, which was such as to easily distract attention from strategic planning for the war. And I, uh,
4: I thought it was a pretty nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's some sarcasm or something in there. Yes, yes.
1: Now, take a look at this. This is really something. Um, the way that Libby describes this is it just sounds a lot like the plague in Athens um, in Thucydides. It, it sounds like um, the, 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 the famine in, around Syracuse in Thucydides. He says um, it was autumn and the area was naturally insalubrious or unhealthy. So much more so outside the city than within. So there's a lot of marshy area, I think, in that area. And an unbearable heat severely affected the health of almost everybody in the two camps. And then it goes on. Um, It just became a terrible, um, you know, attrition here for both sides. Corpses laying around on page 289 at the top before the eyes of people were anticipating such a death themselves, along with the rotting and nox- noxious sten- stench of the cadavers, and so on. So um, so some, some of these soldiers just charged um, into the enemy outposts and preferred to die uh, fighting than to, to wait for the plague to kill them. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, that Libby writes a
3: much more graphic description of the plague than Thucydides did. Thucydides was kind of a, yeah, there was a plague, and it was serious, and, but he didn't get into you know, a detailed description of exactly what it was.
1: Yeah, this is pretty, this is pretty uh, descriptive, for sure. I, I think I do remember those Thucydides saying that people um, were so thirsty that they, um, they crawled into wells. And then they just, uh, you know, they just died, and they were just dead people in the wells. But, I, but I don't know if there's anything else. I mean, that, maybe you're right. It's it wasn't it wasn't very, very detailed as this. Um, Isn't this? Libby, Libby
3: has these flights of uh, rhetoric and, uh, you know, descriptive writing that, uh, you know, it's like an aria in an opera. You know, all of a sudden it bursts into this wonderful or descriptive piece, and then he goes back to the uh, trying to maintain a narrative.
1: Yeah, he really gets, you're right, he really gets into it. It's a real scene, you know, that he describes here. I think you're right. You could almost see it. I mean, you could paint a picture with these details. Um, Where he got this information, I could just imagine, you know, it being passed on orally or something. Maybe it was written down. In some of his sources that that he had access to, but it's, it definitely seems very real, um, and uh, he may even been been using uh, another plague that he himself had seen or was more uh, closer to to kind of help use to describe this scene. I, you know, who knows? Um, and so, so. So anyway, we have this plague, which is a pretty um, significant event. Um, And it seems like the war just gets more and just worse and worse. I mean, besides these battles that take thousands and thousands of lives, um, it it, it comes down to something where two armies are just, you know, they're, they're stubborn and they're just going to just fall dead like flies as well as if it wasn't bad enough already, um, death of Archimedes, um, comes once the, uh, Romans, I think the Romans broke in, let's see, where was that, I know I had it marked, here it is on page 295, um, uh, There were many instances of atrocities. It's near the top of 295, committed from anger and from greed. Tradition has it that amidst the uproar, such as the fear reigning in a captured city, might arouse, with soldiers running on the rampage everywhere, Archimedes was still concentrating intensely on some figures that he had drawn in the dust and was killed by a soldier who did not know who he was. And Marcellus was upset by this. so, it's an interesting little anecdote um,
4: but well, the Romans seem to have pretty elaborate, at least in this case, rules of engagement uh-huh. right very Marcellus laid out very clear rules for who they could loot, who they couldn't loot, who they could kill, who they couldn't kill. It was kind of interesting. I mean the yes. you know it was uh, you know very thought out at least more so than you would think when you consider what the soldiers were being allowed to do anyways, which was still loot the city. hmm Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's it is, it is rather perplexing at times, you know, <laughs> but, um, in this chaos, I can't, you know, I can't imagine, uh, things like this not happening. It's just, it's just going to happen. Um, Right. Um, what's really interesting on this page to me also is that um, halfway down the page, this guy Titus Otachilius, um, who was the naval commander, of, called him the admiral, I guess, of the of Roman Navy, he crossed from Lilibium, which is in Sicily, to Utica. And Utica was in Carthage. This is North Africa. This is, you know, Carthage, this home you know, one of their, their ports, one of their home ports. And he crosses with eighty ships, quinqueremes they're called. And he, he entered the harbour of Utica, captured some transport ships and grain, and then he um and then he went ahead and raided the area around there and came back to Sicily that's Lillibium two days after setting sail and he brought all this stuff back. So I think that That, to me, is extremely telling. Um, What do you guys think? I mean...
5: They're emboldened, for sure. At that point, I think. -uh.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, how like we were saying before, like, how how close were the Carthaginians to this war, you know? Um, Did they ever really... Did the average Carthaginian really um, suffer during up to this point you know did they really have to go through any hardship uh, did they see anybody killed you know probably not um, they're not even really you know they're not even aware of what's going on most of the time so it's it's a distant war for them and now all of a sudden um, the Romans are somehow able to you know, make make uh, landfall on their country. So, um, and this is how Scipio is going to eventually uh, really hurt the hurt Carthage is by bringing the war to them. Um, this is the first moment I thought I'd seen where this was actually starting to look like a possibility. Um, if the Romans could do this, they might might be able to bring some troops over. Um, if, the, if the if the Carthaginians can't stop them, I mean, that's just, was that very surprising.
4: So. Well,
5: when you think about the difference between Rome and, and Carthage, I mean, um, Hannibal, you know, had to draw his troops from whomever was, you know, where he was at the time, whereas Rome always sent reinforcements and they did their own training and then, you know, sent people out. Even when they engaged slaves, they trained them and then sent them out. And the slaves became one with the Romans, whereas the Carthaginians always drew from, from troops whose loyalties weren't necessarily there and will easily switched sides. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and granted, Carthage, Carthage was much farther away, but um, and there were some great remarks also about rumor traveling fast. Um, Rome always knew what was going on. <laughs> you know, the news traveled very fast back to Rome, but like you say. It was like they—it was like they severed the limb of Hannibal. You know, there we don't hear now. Granted, Livy's writing it, so maybe there was more communication and more going on, but we don't know about it because Livy is the author. I don't know, but I was—I was amazed about um how much Rome knew about what was going on in the field because people would come back quickly and tell them.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, how. How um, how effective, right, was communication here? Um, well, <laughs> did, uh, yeah, did, uh, you were saying Rome was staying informed, is that right? Rome? Pardon me?
5: Oh, yeah, I mean, I felt like Rome always knew what was going on, and there were a couple places, there was some cyber language, and I don't have it right in front of me, talking about how quickly rumors spread, and how... Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Rome knew almost immediately what was going on in, in the city-states, in, in Italy. Uh, now, and I guess what I was saying is, you know, we don't hear about Carthage um, knowing anything, but it, it could very well be because Livy wrote it, you know. Yeah. We don't know the carthaginian perspective from the people that were in Carthage.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good, good observation. The Romans... Um, you know, they had the advantage of, I don't know if the advantage, but, or disadvantage of having the war on their own uh, turf. But yeah, they could, they, they were um, very, very particular about passing news on. Um, and um, they, like, for instance, in Rome itself, I know that uh, the common people were extremely gregarious and, um, you know, very, 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 very interested in, in passing on information to each other. So there was like a human internet going on in, in Rome, the city of Rome. And um, so, you know, you could you could get information across the city in, in no time. It was just, you know, they loved gossip, but they also loved to um, talk to each other and tell each other what was going on. So was that spread out throughout Italy? I'm sure. And with the military, uh, you know, constantly keeping Rome, the city of Rome informed. Um, I, I don't doubt it at all, you know, and, um, rumor was always a big problem in the city as well, but could, uh, Carthage stay, uh, updated? Um, probably they could get a ship, you know, a small ship through and report something, but it doesn't look like they're able to move any large amount of ships without being noticed by the Romans. That's, that's, that's the best I can do. You
5: know? So, so that's, that's good enough for me.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting, and, and, and though. I'm
5: looking for those remarks. It was a, there were a couple of clever remarks about the fact that, that the message of what was going on in the field went, went back very quickly to Rome. I wish I could find them right now. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep an eye out for that, too. Um, I think it's fascinating just how the Romans kept each other informed.
0: Well, the one um, thing that I I just thought was amusing. This is Nan again. Was the like when they had the elections, and they like not everybody could come back from the elections because they were <laughs> out fighting in the battles or whatever. But word got to them that they'd been reelected or whatever. And I just I don't know. It just seems amusing to me because I just like these people are. You know, wherever they are fighting, and oh, you've been reelected! Woohoo! Yay! What difference did it make to them? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What difference did it make at that point? And yeah. and if they hadn't been reelected, what you know, it just it just seemed I don't know, uh,
5: <laughs>
0: kind of odd to me and humorous that, that they made a point of noting that.
1: Yeah, they were really sticklers about this. You know, let's change everything over every year, even the generals. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's just like, what is that really that efficient? But they just didn't want anyone in charge for too long because they were afraid. You know, they were afraid that they would abuse their authority. But, but um, on the other hand, you know, when you get down to it, you know, you're not going to say, hey, everybody, stop this battle. This guy is no longer in command. You know, mm-hmm. we elected somebody else. Um, it just, it's just not, it's just not uh, uh, practical, right? It's not practical. So. So yeah, you see a lot of rules broken. You see people being elected as consul more than once within within 10 years, and the and the law was you really couldn't stand for election as consul within 10 years of your last you know election. And uh, um, but here it doesn't it, it, the rules don't apply. You know they bend the rules, and um, and then they have all these dictators they they elect, um, which is really interesting. Um, as well, you don't see that many dictators formally elected ever again in Roman history. It kind of ends with this era, um, but they're not the same dictators as we would think, uh, you know, of modern dictators. Um, great. A- other any other observations? We're kind of we're kind of running out, I guess, of time. Right? We go. To, do we go for an hour? Is that right?
4: Yeah.
1: Okay. So, any final thoughts or comments or
4: I actually thought the most the, the the thing that that struck me, I mean that was the most surprising to me, um, knowing what we know about about Rome's imitation of Greek art was at the end of the chapter twenty five where Livy complains that about the the spoils returning to Rome that that apparently did not happen previously. and specifically that it's what started the appreciation for Greek works of art. Oh yeah, yeah. With, oh, wow. Which he's disapproving of. He's saying <laughs> this was a terrible thing that we we learned to appreciate Greek art. It's yeah. just I had no idea that you know I mean that it was I mean just the kind of thing you don't think about. It had a starting point, or certainly that it was frowned upon because it it again it seems like that became so such a standard part of of the Hellenistic age and Roman culture was. You know, to imitate and 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 collect Greek art. So, yeah, I, I just thought that was very interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. That is such an important part of
1: of this because I'm reading um, a, a Roman comedy right now with my with one of my classes, and it's by Plautus, and he was writing these comedies at this time during the Second Punic War, and it is the um, earliest. Uh, is the earliest com- Roman comedy. You know, they didn't really do this before then. And it was because of exactly what you're saying, because of the contact with Greece. And it all, you know, strangely enough, in the middle of a war, these cultural exchanges happen. And um, after this, Rome is sort of transfixed with this different cultures, especially Greek culture. And it, it invades their entertainment. And they have a tradition of Roman comedy after this. And um, it's just fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Why did it happen at this moment? But
4: this well, it's certainly it historically true that large-scale wars have can have enormous impacts on, I mean, really cause un, unheard of changes in national culture that would have never been contemplated, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's happens again and again yeah you know throughout history so i guess it would it's quite plausible that for whatever reason these these wars one of you know created this cultural transform or you know sparked a cultural transformation
1: yeah it really did and we'll talk more about that because there's you know we still have a lot more to read here but let's look for that too because i think there's a lot of parallels you know like looking at america after each world war and how we changed you know um It's just just dramatic. It's very effective. The other thing is that um, I also learned that the the plays that were written by Plautus are the earliest, the earliest complete works of literature that exist. So it's almost like the birth of Roman literature. I mean, up to this point, you know, there just wasn't anything really substantial. And this is where Roman literature is born, too, at this moment as well as, you know, arts and all this other stuff. I just, I just didn't realize that. So, great. Anything else?
3: Yeah, Andre, I, I enjoyed the parallels with today that uh, the revolt of the tax collectors. And, oh, yeah. Uh, there was this, yeah earlier, there's, there's great patriotism. All the contractors aren't going to make money, and we're going to delay, and how wonderful this all is. Not many more years later, we got the revolt of the tax collectors, fraud, abuse, you know contractors uh, taking money. I mean, so nothing's changed.
1: Oh gosh, yeah, and they're just so reprehensible. It's <laughs> I mean livy does he doesn't hold back on that. you're right. <laughs> uh, aye, aye, aye. good what else? anything else? well, that's this was great. Thank you all for. Um, for uh, discussing this with me. And um, uh, I look forward to our next call. Phil will probably be back, I'm sure. He's in, is he in Dubai still? Um, But we say hi to him if he's listening or when he gets a chance (laughs) to listen. And um, we'll welcome him back.
5: Thanks for moderating, Andre.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you, you, guys. Great, great discussion. Okay, we'll see you next month. (laughs) Okay okay bye-bye. bye bye bye, bye.